1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel 1. Those are going to be our, our main passages this evening, so you can look ahead and find those. We're going to read bits and pieces, pretty good chunks from those two chapters. As we start, I want you to stop and think about songs. Uh, one of the things we're going to talk tonight uh, talk about tonight is a song. And so I just want you to think about how many songs have been written ever. Just all of the songs, country songs, rap songs, rock and roll songs, church songs, songs in our language, songs in other languages, songs you've sung, songs you've never heard of. There's a lot of songs. And for all the millions and millions of songs that have ever been written, maybe billions, I don't know, just lots of songs, you can really boil most of them down to a few categories of topic. There's not a whole lot of variety about what human beings sing about. Here's my list. At the top of the list, human beings sing about love, and I'm using that to refer to romantic love as well as anything else you might put in the broad category of love. There are songs about love. There are also songs about drugs and or songs that you wrote when you were on drugs that really aren't about anything, but really they're about nothing and they're songs about drugs. Songs about your family, songs about work, songs about money, songs about country, meaning your country, how much you love your country or how much you hate your country. Those can go either way. Songs about religion. This is not really in any order of importance. I'm just listing them out. And then I'm just going to tack on to the end songs that are about hurt, songs that are about pain. Obviously, there's some overlap in those categories, and maybe you would add one or two or combine some of those. But I want you to think tonight about songs about hurt. And I'll just give you a few examples from, quote-unquote, relatively recent times. Uh, R.E.M. wrote a song called Everybody Hurts. And there's a line in the song that says, Don't let yourself go because everybody cries and everybody hurts sometimes. Uh, Johnny Cash did not write this song, but he covered this song. It was written by a guy named Trent Reznor. The song is called Hurt. He covered it, and he sang it when he was very old, towards the end of his life. And there's a part of the song that says, What have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end. That's a, a song sung by a man who has lost all his friends. And he's lived that, and he feels the pain of that. And he says, You can have it all, my empire of dirt. That's a man who's at the end of his life and realizes all this stuff that I thought was so important is just a bunch of dirt. You can have it. And he says, I will let you down. I will make you hurt. And then I'm going to try to resist singing this one. How about the Scottish rock band Nazareth? And they look so happy in that picture. They're all smiling. Uh, but they have a song called Love Hurts. So a couple of those categories combined. And um, some of you are singing the melody in your head, right? You can't help but sing it. I'm going to do my best not to. <laughs> love hurts, love scars, love wounds and marks. Any heart not tough enough or strong enough to take a lot of pain, take a lot of pain. Love is like a cloud. It holds a lot of rain. Love hurts. Ooh, Ooh, 
love hurts. So we sing about hurt. Um, and I didn't do a wide-ranging sociological research dive this week, but I imagine that what we sing about when we in our culture sing about hurt and pain is true for other places. I imagine they sing about the same thing in their own tunes and melodies and instruments and arrangements and all of those things. Hurt is a universal human experience on some level. Pain and suffering and hurt are things that we all go through uh, at times in our lives. It could be because of family could be because of divorce. Um, it could be because of something that your parents have done or not done or something that your children have done or not done that can cause hurt. It could be physical injury that leads to just a dramatic change in your life. One injury could change everything about uh, your livelihood and your work and, and your family. Uh, it could be job loss. It could be a move, um, moving to a new place. Um, when we moved here from Oklahoma, uh, there was hurt for especially our oldest daughter, um, just moving and leaving your friends, and you guys have experienced that sort of thing if you've moved. Uh, I know and talk to a lot of people who have serious hurt from church problems, just things that have happened at church that are hard to process and hard to deal with, and that can be a painful thing, a hurtful thing. And certainly, we would put on that list death. Death is something that causes us to experience hurt. Here's a quote from Chuck Swindoll specifically about death. Sometimes death is sudden. Sometimes it's long and drawn out. Occasionally, it's beautiful, sweet, and peaceful. At other times, it's wrenching, hideous, bloody, and ugly. There are times from our viewpoint that it comes too early. On other occasions, it seems the cold fingers of death linger too long and some dear soul endures pain, sadness, loneliness, senility. But however it comes, it comes to us all. There is no escape. In this story that we're looking at tonight, death comes to Saul and Jonathan and the hurt comes to David. So we're going to talk briefly about Saul and Jonathan and how those guys leave the scene. And then we're going to look at how David processed that and how David led his people, his nation, to process that as well. So let's just say a few things about Saul's death. I'm not going to look at a whole lot here, but I just want you to see the horror of this. Saul was a guy who started out with lots of potential. He really, he came out of the gate gangbusters and everything looked fantastic. And by the time you trace his story and get to the end of, a, end of his life, he's in a complete death spiral. And it's just, it's going down so hard and so fast that it's absolutely frightening. So if you look just quickly at 1 Samuel 28, Saul didn't know this, but this was the day before he died. He secretly visited a witch, and they had a seance, and they conjured up the spirit of Samuel. And when Samuel showed up, I just want you to read with me what Samuel said to Saul in this seance. And I know that's weird, and I know that begs a lot of questions. We're not going to talk about that. This is what Samuel said. Verse 15 in 1 Samuel 28, Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress. There's a great description for the end of his life. It's the end of his life. I'm, I'm in great distress. Everything's coming apart. 
The Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I should do. Samuel said, why do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Keep that in mind. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Probably not what he wanted to hear. This is what happened the very next day. 1 Samuel, chapter 31, beginning in verse 1. The Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died. And his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul. And his three sons, fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. They fashioned his body to the wall of Beth Shan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. That's just a complete, out-of-control death spiral. And Saul summed it up well when he said, I am in distress and the Lord has turned against me. This is on your notes. Saul's reign as king of Israel came to an idolatrous, violent, tragic end. Idolatrous, violent, and tragic. Idolatrous in the sense that he is visiting a witch, asking her to perform a seance. He's done the right thing as king and he's banished, quote unquote, banished these people from the land, but secretly he goes in disguise, lying, pretending that he's someone else, 
He's guilty of, of an idolatrous act here. Violent, his army's defeated, his sons are slaughtered. He's been shot up by the Philistine archers. He falls on his own sword. He doesn't want the Philistines to have fun at his own expense. That ends up happening anyways. They chop off his head, they hang his body on the wall, and they celebrate in their temples. You understand the Philistines went home and had worship services and mocked Saul and mocked Jonathan and mocked Yahweh. Our kings are stronger than your kings. Our army is stronger than your army. And our gods are stronger than your God. It's violent. It's idolatrous. And it's tragic. Two reminders I just give you before we press on in this story. In this life, the wicked will often experience ruin. Not always in this life, but often they will experience ruin. And the Bible describes this in a number of different ways. I gave you a few verses you can look up in Psalms and Proverbs. Sometimes it talks about the the wicked man digs digs a trap for his enemy, but he's the one that's going to fall in it. Sometimes it talks uh, about the violence of wicked men turning back on themselves and destroying them. In this life, oftentimes, the wicked will end in ruin. But in the next life, the wicked will certainly experience judgment. And if you read this story of Saul, and you read about his last days and the horror of it, just remind yourself that what came next in the afterlife was far worse than anything that we just read. There was a judgment for Saul. And it was serious, and it was severe. When you go from the end of 1 Samuel, chapter 31, and you flip the page to 2 Samuel, chapter 1, you pick up with the same story, and you find out this is how David got the news about Saul and Jonathan in the defeat of their army. This is how David found out about that news. And I just want to point this out. There's some textual questions surrounding the circumstances of his death. When you flip over and you look at 2 Samuel 1, it sounds like there was an Amalekite who came along and finished Saul off and took his crown. When you read the passage we just read, we didn't read about an Amalekite finishing him off or a crown. You read about the armor bearer, and he wouldn't kill him, and he falls on the sword. And you read these two, and initially you say, oh, it sounds like two sort of different stories. But more than likely what happens is The Philistines are pressing in. Saul realizes the writing's on the wall to steal from Daniel. And he says, I'm just going to end it because I don't want these guys to torture me. He's watched his sons die, and he just falls on his own sword. Before he actually dies, what probably happened is this Amalekite comes along, finds him lying there in some state of near death, finishes him off, and takes the crown as proof that he's dead. You can, you can wade through the details and you can read the two chapters and compare them. I don't think there's a contradiction there. Don't get lost in the details and miss the bigger point. Saul lost his kingdom because he would not kill who? We read it a minute ago. Amalek, king of the Amalekites. Would not kill all of the Amalekites like God told him to, and he lost his kingdom. And in the end, it's an Amalekite that takes his life. Just think about the contrast that the author is giving you as you move from Saul to David. 
David, for the last several months of his life, has been doing Saul's job for him. He's been fighting the Amalekites. And when this Amalekite shows up and says, hey, he's dead, and he's the one that finished him off, David finishes him off. And there's a real neat literary sort of piece of irony here that seems the whole story together and says, look, Saul goes out because he won't wipe out the Amalekites, and they're the ones who eventually do him in. David is actually doing Saul's job, fighting the Amalekites, and he's the one that ultimately finishes them off. Now, what I want you to see tonight is how David handles this. We've talked about David a lot on the run, in the wilderness, taking care of men. Saul's trying to pin him to the wall. Saul's hunting him down like an animal. David's got opportunities to kill him that he doesn't take. If you didn't know what happened, and maybe you don't know what happened, you might be tempted to think David would get this news that Saul is dead and at the minimum would say, oh, what a relief. I feel like a weight's been lifted off my shoulders. Maybe at the most you would think he would throw a party, have a celebration, get all his buddies together, and rejoice that his enemy is dead. He doesn't do either of those things. When David heard the news about Saul and Jonathan, he was moved to lament. And that's what we're talking about tonight, David's lament. Look at 2 Samuel 1, verse 11 and 12. This is when the Amalekite shows up and he gives him the news. He shows him the crown as proof that he's dead. 2 Samuel 1, 11, David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Pick up a few verses later, 2 Samuel 1, verse 17 and 18. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it's written in the book of Jashar. He said, and very quickly, we'll just read the lament. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, that's a Philistine city. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, another Philistine city. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields or offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided, they were swifter than eagles, They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan, lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen in the weapons of war perished that's the lament let's take a moment to just talk about what a lament is a lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow 
It's passionate in the sense that it's not just academic. A lament is not like in the fifth grade when you had to pick a poem and memorize it and stand up in front of the class and recite your poem. You probably didn't do that as a fifth grader with a lot of emotion. You were probably nervous and you were anxious and you probably stood up there and you said your poem a million miles an hour and you sat down and if you got all the words right, maybe you got an A on it. A lament is not like that. It's a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. It's honest. Everything about a lament is honest. A lament is controlled. It's not out of control. A lament is thoughtful. You see that in what David sang about Saul. Look, David has the task that a lot of preachers have when somebody dies and you have to say a eulogy, a good word at their service. For some people, that's really easy. And for some people, you have to step back and say, well, what are you going to say about Saul? Samuel pretty much said it all just a day earlier, right? But he says, look, he, he increased wealth in Israel. You had nice clothing. You had gold. He was a, a soldier. He was, he was valiant. He was loyal to his son to some degree in moments. It's thoughtful. It's filled with faith. A lament is, it's filled with faith in God. And you could say a lament is an act of worship. It is not just talking to people, but it's really talking to God and allowing other people to hear. Peterson describes it like this. Lament isn't an animal wail. It's not an inarticulate howl. Lament notices and attends, savors and delights, details, images, relationships, pain entered into, accepted, and owned can become poetry. It's no less pain. There is pain there. There is grief and there is sorrow, but it's no longer ugly. The Bible is filled with lamentations. There's tons of them. Did you know over 70% of the book of Psalms are laments? Seven out of ten are laments of one variety or another. There's an entire book of the Bible. You may not have read it lately. It's called Lamentations. The whole book is a lament. The entire thing, that's all it is, is one big lament as the people are taken into exile. Ecclesiastes 3. You remember the passage that says there's a time for this and a time for that. There's a time for this and a time for that. There is a time to lament, and a time to weep, and a time to mourn. When you lament, you show care and concern and love. Care and concern and love. David cared about Jonathan. That's obvious. They were best buddies. They were tight. They made covenants together. They made promises to each other. They looked out for each other. They were friends. He even says in this lament, I'm closer to you than any woman. And you know his wife loved that line. You and me were thick. We were tight. He loved him, and he also loved Saul. And that may surprise you that David would love Saul. Here's how I make sense of that. You remember early, before David was on the run and hiding out in caves and drooling on himself in Gath, he worked for Saul. And he saw Saul tormented by an evil spirit. 
And we don't know all the details, but somehow it worked out that when the spirit would torment Saul, David would show up and play music, and it would give some relief to Saul. David ministered to Saul in his suffering. And I can just say this from experience. It is impossible to minister to a person and not care for them. You may not go into it caring for them. You may go into it with a bad attitude. But when you minister to a person who's hurting, like David did to Saul early on, you develop a bond for that person. And I think that's what happened between David and Saul. There's care, there's concern, there's love. And I just want you to contrast this with our news cycle in the United States. News, 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 breaking news. I bet somebody has broken news while we've started. I bet you could pick your phone up and there's a, a Fox News alert, a CNN breaking news, a, a something has happened and it's breaking news. We get news all the time and almost all of it's bad. Someone died, breaking news. One country's bombing another, breaking news. Somebody got caught in a scandal, breaking news. And that's the essence of what the news is. If you want attention, do something bad. That's what the news pays attention to. Why does the news pay attention to that? Because that's what you and I pay attention to. We tune in. We listen. It's breaking news. I can't turn away. I, I got to know it. I got I to gotta hear all the details. In all of that bad news that you see on the news, there's no lament. In fact, sometimes there's celebration. Sometimes there's laughing at situations that are truly tragic. And they're made light of and they're reported as just sort of factual. There's no lament in any of it. There's no care. There's no concern. There's no love. Peterson says it like this. There's no lament, and he's talking about our culture, because truth isn't taken seriously. Love isn't taken seriously. Human life doesn't matter as life. As God-given, Christ-redeemed, spirit-blessed life, it counts only as news. There's no dignity to any of it. It's all trivial. It's all trivialized. You and I need to learn how to lament. Fox News isn't going to teach you how to do it. You can turn to CNN or MSNBC or any of the rest of them. They're not going to teach you how to do it either. They'll teach you how to gloat. They'll teach you how to cry that the sky is falling. They won't teach you how to lament. We need to learn how to do that. And David knew that his men, his people, needed to learn how to lament. And he didn't waste this opportunity to teach them David, not only did he lament, he set out to teach God's people how to lament. The text specifically talks about that. Look at 2 Samuel 1, 11. David took hold of his clothes and he tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. Listen to me. Those men are watching David close, like a hawk. They're locked in. If David starts clapping, they're going to start clapping. If David rips his clothes and breaks into lament, they're going to do it. They're going to follow David. Look at verse 17 and 18. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. He said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Essentially, he says, I'm going to write a song, and you're going to learn it. And as we learn this song and sing it together, we're going to learn how to lament. Why is it important? Why is it necessary? One reason is this. We need to learn how to lament because there are temptations. There are a number of temptations that come with grief and sorrow. 
If you don't know how to lament, you're going to struggle with these temptations. There's the temptation when you see suffering. There's a temptation to give in to anxiety and to think, am I next? Is it coming for me next? To get so wrapped up in that that you just focus on yourself. There's the temptation to guilt. This is the temptation where you see suffering out there and you say, well, I feel like it should have been me. Why wasn't it me? Why was it that person and not me? Why did I, why did I get away? It's, it's the survivor's guilt mentality. There's envy as you deal with suffering. Maybe the, the suffering is close to home and you look outward and you say, well, why, why isn't it happening to them? Why is it happening to me and not them? They deserve it more than, than me and I wish I was in their spot and they were in mine. There's a lot of temptation you can face when you're, when you're suffering, when you're hurting. You need to learn how to lament. Lament is rarely practiced in our culture and I think in the United States, I can't speak to other cultures, but I think in the United States we tend towards one of two extremes when it comes to dealing with hurt. One extreme that we probably uh, experience is what you could call just raging grief. You remember when we said lament is controlled? This is not controlled. It's just sort of let it all out with absolutely no filter. And if you feel angry with God, then be angry with God. If you feel angry at the world, then be angry at the world. It's just sort of a turn it all loose, a raging out of control grief. Lament is honest, but lament is never angry with God. Never. And there's a lot of it in the Bible. It's never angry with God. It's honest with God. At times it questions God, but it does it with a reverence and a respect, not with anger. So I think that's one extreme. Another extreme is what our British friends might call just have a stiff upper lip. Just suck it up. Just be tough. Don't show it. Don't express it. Just bottle it up. You've got stuff to take care of. You have responsibilities. You don't have time for this. You've got to move on. Just suck it up. Be tough. I think there's an example of this. If you've seen Lonesome Dove, there's a funeral scene. And Woodrow Call in that scene says, the best thing you can do with death is ride off from it. Well, that's helpful. It's not what David said here. He didn't say, well, it's done. Let's move on with life. He said, we're going to call a timeout. And we're going to lament together. We're going to talk to God about this. We're going to grieve. We're going to hurt. We're going to feel the pain. We're going to have faith. We're going to be under control. We're going to do it together as the people of God. But we're going to lament. We need to know how to do it. Lament is often missing in our prayers. It's often missing. And I'll just give you a few examples of, of ways I in my life have been taught to pray that they don't include lament. These are helpful and they're good. And I'm not saying you shouldn't pass them on to your kids or your grandkids or your Sunday school class, but there's something missing here. One is the ACTS model. A-C-T-S, Acts. You start with adoration, then you move to confession, then you give thanks, and then supplication, you pray for other people. Anybody ever been taught 
to pray like that. I remember as a young child seeing this in a Sunday school. It's helpful. It's really, really good. It's incomplete. There's no place in there for lament. There's no place in there for seven out of ten psalms. They don't fit. There's, put an L in there somewhere. Lax. I don't know. You could rearrange it some other way. I'm not going to try to anagram it, but you're missing something. Another one is pray. You praise, then you repent, then you ask, then you yield. That's pretty good. That's a good way to approach prayer, especially for a new believer who doesn't know how to pray. What do I actually say to God? That's a pretty good start. But somewhere, you need to include this idea of lament, of being honest with God and expressing your grief to God with faith. When you read this story about David, and he gets the news about Saul and Jonathan, and he stops everybody and he says, we are going to lament together. We're going to grieve this together before we move on. We're going to dignify what's happened. We're not going to trivialize or celebrate what's happened. There's a lesson that we need to learn. You can learn it from David. You can also learn it from the son of David, Jesus. And that's how we'll wrap up tonight. Jesus shows us how to lament, and Jesus changes the way that we lament. He sets an example that we can follow, and as you're following Jesus, it changes the way that you lament and that we lament as the people of God. Two thoughts here. Jesus lamented at the death of his friend Lazarus. And I'd just like you to take your Bible, flip to the New Testament, book of John, chapter 11. We're not going to read the whole story. We're going to read a little paragraph. John 11, verse 32 to 36. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping. That's one of the things he saw. He saw Mary weeping. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And in the verses that follow, he says, take away the stone. He says to Martha and to Mary, I told you if you believed, you would see the glory of God. He prays to the Father. And then he says in verse 43, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. I just want you to think about the fact that as Jesus walks into this scene, he knows I will have dinner with Lazarus tonight on this earth at Mary and Martha's. Mary will be sitting there talking. Martha will be doing the dishes. And Lazarus will be there. He knows that's going to happen. 
And he doesn't trivialize the whole thing and just bust in there and say, hey, I'm here. It's time to have a party. Everybody get excited. Watch what's about to happen. Instead, he looks at the people that he cares about, Mary and Martha, and he sees them grieving, and he's hurt because they're hurt. And he looks at Lazarus' friends, and they're hurt. And because they're hurt, he's hurt. And he looks at death, just death itself the consequence of sin, and there's hurt. And he thinks about his own death, which is just a few days away. It's really, really close. And he knows, just like they put him in the ground, they're going to put me in the ground. And all of that adds up to hurt. And he stops dinner plans, and he cries. He doesn't just cry, he weeps. It's not uncontrollable. Because he's reasoning with Martha and Mary. He's sharing gospel truth with them. He's praying to the Father. All of this is very worshipful. But he dignifies the moment by grieving. You need to understand, this is not just a cool story. This is not just, hey, share that at my funeral because that's kind of nice. This is the, the essence of what makes Christianity different than every other faith on the earth. This is the difference. Our creator understands hurt. No other faith can say that. There's deities, there's gods, there's higher powers, there's creator beings, there's supreme beings. They're up there, they're untouchable, they're aloof, they're distant. Our God willingly entered into our mess and experienced hurt and suffering and pain and lament. And he sets the example that we can follow. Secondly, the death, burial, and resurrection and return of Jesus cause us to lament with hope. And understand what we didn't say. We didn't say the death, burial, resurrection, return of Jesus makes us happy all day long and just puts a smile on our face that never goes away. It just makes everything easy and rosy and peachy and butterflies, and it's just great. But in our lament, we have hope. So take your Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. That's a small book, so while you find it, I'm going I'm to give you a, an example or an illustration of what we're talking about here. If you have social media, you know the first day of school is a hard day for some mothers, especially mothers, it seems like, who are sending their kids to school for the very first time. That's a hard thing for mama to pull up to the big scary school and little Johnny or little Susie has to get out in the backpacks all the way down to their calves and just send them in the building. Hope it goes well. And moms, they post videos and pictures, and they're weeping in the front seat, and they're crying. And there's even a thing now, this happens in our own city, uh, a cry club. Cry club for moms. So you go the first day of school, drop your kids off at school, then you go to the designated place, and you have cookies and punch, and you sit around and you cry together. And you just say, oh, I miss him so much. Oh, oh, it's so sad. And they're just... They're just broken over it. Talk to those moms in February. 
I saw some of them this week, right? You're pulling up to to school after Christmas break, you've had little Johnny or Susie home for a couple of weeks, and that minivan door slides open, and you can see mom's foot sticking out. She's kicking those kids out. Bye. After school care is going to be great. Don't forget you got practice after school. I'll see you at 730. I'll be back to pick you up later. Talk to those moms in summer, two weeks into summer. There's a cry club, but it's not because they're missing their kids. The cry club is, when does school start? When does first grade come around? What has changed for those moms? I'm picking on moms. Maybe there's dads too, but I think it's mostly moms. What's changed for those moms between first day of school, cry club, and summer break, when does school go back? At least one of the things that's changed is she's realized when little Johnny goes, he's coming back. He's going to be gone for a little while, but he's going to come back. Little Susie's going to be at school for a few hours, but then I'm going to get her back. That's Paul's logic to the church in Thessalonica when he's talking to them about how they grieve. There's all sorts of confusion in Thessalonica about people who have died. And did they miss the resurrection? Did they miss the second coming of Jesus? Are they going to see it? Are they not going to see it? We're so sad for them. We miss them so much. We feel bad that it didn't work out a different way. And Paul says, no, 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 no. He says, nobody's going to miss it. Those of us who are left, we're not going to precede those who have fallen asleep. We're all going to see Jesus when he comes back. This resurrection is going to take place. We're all going to be involved in it. And look what he says, 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, about those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And he goes on and he says, he's going to come back. I know that you're grieving right now. I know that you're feeling hurt and loss, and pain, and suffering. And Paul doesn't try to minimize that. He doesn't say, just suck it up. He doesn't say, just throw a big, giant pity party. He says, grieve. You should be grieving. It's hurt. It's real. Lament. But do it with hope. You do it with hope because Jesus is coming back. When he comes back, he's coming as the king of kings, the Lord to rule over all lords. He's going to sit on David's throne forever. 